Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another King and Servant podcast. Now, for those who have been faithful and have subscribed to the podcast, this might come as somewhat of a surprise because for the past three months, me and Brian have been busy with other legitimate things and it has uh, prevented us from getting to the studio. I mean, I guess we could have at a stretch. We could have made it happen. But Brian had his things going on. I had my things going on. And uh, we just found ourselves very busy. We all have to make money. <laughs> and pay bills, Brian just added. And by the way, Brian will not be joining me in the studio tonight. In fact, this uh, this actually sparks or begins a new approach to the show, a new format to the show. And um, after having a couple of discussions with Brian, what we felt would be best for the future shows is to have... Brian in the control room and then me here in the studio and there can still be interaction between me and Brian but it won't be a case of me just putting poor Brian on the spot with complex theological questions to which yes we all know he uh, he's been around the block a few times he can he can wrestle with the best of us but uh, given his schedule given everything else he is talented at <laughs> in fact actually parenthetically if you got a moment uh, he did an exceptionally, Brian did an exceptionally good job uh, a couple of weeks ago at church when you preached. Uh, I wish we had recorded it because then we could have also uploaded it to the podcast. But anyway, um, long story short is that's the way we're going to approach it now. Now tonight, Brian doesn't have a mic set up, but what we have in mind is he will in uh, future shows so that when he has a question or I have a question for him, uh, he can chime in, give his viewpoint, give his thoughts. But it's not like this um, this highly pressured, you know, webcast scenario where uh, I have to uh, have Mr. Brian so theologically astute <laughs> and ready to go after like a ten-hour workday. Uh, that's just simply not healthy, you know. So <laughs> yeah, he's saying right now that his isms are not up to par. Well, that's that's not what uh, precludes you from the table here, Brian. I want you to know that. But uh, we feel that's the best uh, way to approach things. And uh, give us some feedback. Um, because for me to continue to do this, I need to know people are listening. Uh, because the second idea that we have, and I, I believe I've mentioned this before, uh, that is we want to try and uh, bring the podcast to the next level, if you will. And that next level would involve getting an internet connection in the studio not so that we can go live with open phones. Uh, we may actually never get to that point. Who knows? That's up to the Lord. But what I would like to see happen is an internet connection in the studio so that I can record shows with special guests uh, via the internet. Uh, there's been a few people who have expressed interest in coming on the show, but they can't get to the studio because they don't live in Florida or South Florida for that matter. Uh, so we would like to um, get that set up so we can have special guests on the show and interviews on the show. Because when I look at um, the downloads for the shows I've done thus far, we typically get the most downloads first for the debates and then secondly when I have a special guest on. And when I've had my father on in the past, those shows, I've had a lot of downloads. Dee uh, Dee Warren has been on a couple of times. That got a lot of downloads. So it seems that um, people like to hear other people. 
<laughs> not just my good self. I'm, I'm including myself in that category that uh, you like to listen to me as well, uh, but also to listen to others. And it just adds a certain dynamic to the show. Uh, so tonight, for example, I will be going solo. I will be presenting a monologue and not having a dialogue or an interview with somebody. And it's enjoyable in one in one perspective or in one um, in one viewpoint because you can just say what you think, and there's nobody there to refute you, or nobody there to question you. So that's that's a, a huge benefit of doing it this way. But I think, in all honesty, I prefer the dialogue, the the uh, the interaction that I can have with a guest, and I think also you, the listener, will benefit more from that approach. Uh, so we're seeking to do things such as that in the future but I need feedback or if not feedback I just need um, you guys to listen I can follow it on the Google Analytics I can see you know which shows are getting downloads and which ones aren't and um, so I'm, I'm still very much enthused about doing this I'm very much uh, excited about uh, bringing a bro- broadcast to you each week or every other week uh, as Providence allows um, but um, those are the thoughts that I've uh, kind of uh, meditated, if you will, reflected on uh, these past couple of weeks. So anyway, that's the long introduction out the way. Um, but now into something substantial. Okay, what can we talk about this evening? Well, in the three-month interim that I've had away from the studio, I've done a lot of preaching. Um, you might see a couple of sermons of mine up on the podcast on the webpage there. Um, but it's also given me a lot of time to really sit back and uh, reflect on certain issues, certain theological topics, certain issues affecting us today in our culture and society. So the topic that I have for you all this evening is on triune theology or Trinitarian theology and its application to Christian living. And you might be saying, well, that's a bit of a mouthful. Well, it's my intention in this in this show here to unpack that a little bit and see the relevance of triune theology or Trinitarian theology as it pertains to our sanctification and our Christian walk. Uh, because typically the way the Trinity is taught, and rightly so, in systematic works or in uh, Bible schools is these theological propositional truths, which they are, and they become abstractions that we kind of paint in the sky and we say, okay, this is what we believe, and we, we state these things to be true. But then we don't take it to the point of application where it really impacts our lives. Um, so the doctrine of the Trinity must be learned, and you must sit down with a good Bible teacher and allow him to expound and exegete the necessary passages that clearly teach the doctrine of the Trinity. We must learn doctrine. Um, not two ways about it. In fact, we don't have Christianity if we don't have biblical doctrine. And I'm not of that persuasion either that uh, we can't come to concrete conclusions on doctrine, that we can't have systematic theology. I'm a big believer in systematic theology. I'm a big believer in synthesizing the entirety of the both Old and New Testament witness when it comes to any biblical topic. Amen to that. I'm all for that. But if it just stays there or we think that's the beginning and end all of those doctrinal truths, then obviously we're going to be slightly hypocritical or we're going to have those truths as an adjunct on appendix to our Christian life 
or our lives and not see it uh, immediately influencing and impacting how we should behave and think in this uh, this modern age. So that's what I'd like to touch on this evening. I don't want to necessarily prove the doctrine of the Trinity. Most of you who are listening to the show are Christians. And even if you're Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, um, you all have this in common. We are all Trinitarians. And um, it's an established truth of church history that the councils that got together, whether it was the Council of Nicaea, the Council of Chalcedon, um, or the other confessions of Reformed history, clearly taught the doctrine of the Trinity. But for those, and maybe there's one or two people listening, who are completely new to that word, or uh, if not new to that word, have very little understanding of what it is. Um, the position of the Trinity, according to the Bible, is that there are three persons who share in the one divine Godhead. Or, another way of putting it, there is one God revealed in three persons, and those three persons are eternally distinct from one another. I'll put it more um, precisely for the uh, heresy hunters out there. There is one substance, one God, Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord, and there are three subsistences, three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. For example, in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, when Jesus tells the disciples there in verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Notice it doesn't say in the names. This is not tritheism. This idea that there's three gods and they have a committee that kind of binds them together. Or now there is a covenant, as some are teaching today, that binds them together. They are one in substance. So that's why singular in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Notice again, it doesn't say in the name of the exalted man. That's a reference to Mormon theology there. Uh, the deified man, the demigod, or Michael the archangel. That's a reference to the Jehovah's Witness theology when it comes to the doctrine of Christ. And the force. That's a reference to Star Wars, or the Jehovah's Witness again, where they impersonalize the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Holy Trinity. And we do speak of it in 1, 2, and 3 there. Father being the first person of the Holy Trinity, the Son being the second, and the Holy Spirit being the third. And they are co-equal and co-eternal and share in the one divine nature. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. And if somebody's found error with that, chances are you're never going to be satisfied with a definition. But that's, that's simply what the Bible teaches. It is not a contradiction. Um, you know, the, the name of our show is called King and Servant, and that is hinting to, or alluding to, rather, um, paradoxical theology as well as Christology. Uh, because within paradoxical theology, we accept certain truths based on biblical re revelation that we can completely harmonize in our finite minds. An example of this would be the Trinity. 
I cannot have exhaustive rational penetration on the doctrine of the Trinity. I can fully affirm and apprehend, but I can't fully comprehend the doctrine of the Trinity. And yes, we can have illustrations and examples. I remember one well-meaning Bible teacher teaching uh, in one class that you have to think of the Trinity as water, gas, and ice. That, you know, sometimes it's water, sometimes it's ice, sometimes um, it's, um, what was the other one? Same substance, thank you, Brian. Same substance, different form, which sounds kind of helpful at first glance, but on closer inspection, we find that actually it's deficient because from that very same illustration, we could have modalism, which has been repackaged in modern days as oneness theology, where there's only one God and he reveals himself as different people uh, at different times. So it's almost like an actor coming on stage as three different people at three different intervals. That's not what the doctrine of the Trinity is. They are co-eternal and co-distinct from one another in the one divine substance, divine nature. So, yes, we can use these illustrations, but we have to qualify them. But eventually we hit paradox. Eventually we see that there is one God revealed in three, three persons, and those three persons are eternally distinct from one another. So what's the big deal, and how does it apply to our Christian walk? Well, funnily enough, if you compare it to other monotheistic viewpoints, which at first glance can seem quite close to the doctrine of the Trinity, say, for example, Islam, with their radical Unitarian view of God. For those who are new to that phrase Unitarian, it basically means a monotheistic worldview that holds to not only is there one God, but there's only one divine person within the Godhead. So in the God of Islam, we have Allah, who, if you will, is the great loner. Um, he is the hermit in the sky, if you will, where he has no company throughout all of eternity until he creates. Where in triune theology, we don't have that situation at all. We have the Father and the Son and the Spirit in holy triune communion and fellowship throughout all of eternity. And they create as an overflow of their goodness, out of an overflow of their love for their own glory. That's what the Bible teaches. So we can see immediately in contrast there, if you hold to a view, whether it's Jehovah's Witness, which is Unitarian, which doesn't believe that Jesus is God, or whether it's Islam, and there are other religions that affirm this Unitarian viewpoint, they all seem to have a strong emphasis on headship and submission to that headship. So it becomes a power struggle within their, 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 their walk, their, their, their experience, their life. So a couple of examples. Um, within Islam, as I just alluded to a few moments ago, uh, it means submission. And you find that when it comes to gender roles, there's a high emphasis on the headship of the man. Uh, and I would say to the unnecessary detriment of the woman. Um, and there are other examples as well of this having its outworking in uh, one's uh, life based on their viewpoint of God. So we find there that their view or their understanding, their theology of God has impacted 
their life. Um, the Jehovah's Witness, again, and I've touched on this before, it's based in a rationalism where you have to have everything rationally understood so there's no room for paradox. You can't have triune theology. So that radically impacts how they view thinking and how they view what is true and what is false. See, it flows from an understanding of God and who he is in his nature. But getting back to the truth, getting back to the truth of Yahweh as he reveals himself in the Old and New Testament scriptures, he is one God in three persons. So you have the one and the many in creation. We see from the beginning he made man and he gave him Eve. And yes, Adam was to be Eve's head, but they were one. That's why in Genesis, which is further quoted in Matthew, it says, For this reason a man shall leave his family and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Um, that is a very important Hebrew word. I believe it's reiterated in Deuteronomy 6.4 when it says there is one Lord. There is one God. So you have two there becoming one. Now obviously in the Trinitarian sense, it's in, in an absolute sense that there is one God. Uh, the image of God is analogous to that. But also from that, you have offspring and the father-son relationship. Well, what's that rooted in? We see again in Trinitarian theology the relationship between the Father and the Son. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Perfect terse way of explaining the doctrine of the Trinity there. And that word with in the Greek pros means face to face and fellowship with. It's not as if they're all standing on podiums or like at the Olympics when you get the gold, the silver and the bronze and they stand next to each other. No, this is communion, this is fellowship. The Father loving the Son, the Son loving the Father, the Holy Spirit proceeding eternally from both the Father and the Son in triune love and communion and fellowship. So we see in the creative order, we have the Father and the Son. We have the mother and the daughter. We have the one and the many. We have headship and we have servanthood. See, the Son obeys the Father. He says, I always do the things I see the Father do. I always please the Father. But yet, he is co-equal with the Father. So he's not subordinate to the point of being less than the Father in nature. But he's equal. But yet he serves. Or the Holy Spirit, for that matter, who eternally proceeds from both the Father and the Son. Following out the, the, the commission of Jesus through the the work of regeneration in sinners' lives and through the work of the miraculous power of the Spirit in the book of Acts and through the work of the gospel proclamation in the church age and the discipling of the nations, following out the work of Christ. But yet is the Holy Spirit less than Christ in nature? Of course not. The Bible does not teach this. So likewise... When we get to, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 11, when it's talking about man and God and how man is made after the glory of God and after the likeness of God, it goes on to say that the woman is made after the, uh, the glory of man, but both are after the likeness of God. And that the man has come from the woman 
who would be who would be alive today if it wasn't for the woman? <laughs> you know, it all fits together. We all need each other. There is a quality, both man and woman, and every person from every tribe, tongue, and nation is made in the image of God. Complete equality, but yet there's distinction in role. And that's why we have so many New Testament teachings and Old Testament teachings that speaks of the leadership role the husband should take in the home and how the wife should support the husband in that role and how the children should be obedient to both the mother and the father. It's not this idea that, okay, I'll just be nice to mother. And when you look at Marian doctrines of the Catholic Church, we see how maternal their theology has become. And who knows, maybe Mary one day might get her big promotion you know, to, to the Trinity. And you think I'm joking, but I don't think that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a stretch if you consider how those doctrines have developed over time. But it's not the Heavenly Mother, is it? It's the Heavenly Father. So when my dad goes to China, and I remember a close friend of my father who's done a lot of work in China, um. I remember him telling me that a lot of the people truly convert to Christ, but they struggle with the concept of a heavenly father because their own fathers failed in that role, in that responsibility as head of the home. So it's a difficult concept for them to digest and to embrace and to love. So this is an obstacle to explain how the heavenly father is not like the earthly father. But the earthly father is supposed to be like the heavenly father. How does a family unit break down when the man is not in his place, taking that responsibility seriously, guarding in headship over his family, looking out for the well-being of his family? Christ is head of the church. But how is he head of the church? Because it says in Ephesians that he gave himself up for the church. And Apostle Paul uses this as an example to speak about how we are to love our wives and how we are to love one another. But in particular, in the context of the, the, uh, the husband and wife relationship, the husband is to give up his life for his wife. And it says also again, 1 Corinthians, I believe it's 7, it says, the man does not have an authority over his own body, but the, the wife does. And the wife does not have an authority over her own body, but the husband does. A covenant agreement to, to be there for one another and to live together and to cohabit together and to support one another and to love one another. It all flows from Trinitarian theology, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Also, we think of our court system today and how it's based in Judeo-Christian philosophy. For the most part, there are other examples, of course, in, in history. But as it's based on general revelation or natural revelation, uh, the Scripture says, through the mouth of two or three witnesses, every case shall be established. Look at the Trinity. You've got three persons. There's three subjective knowledges there, but there's one objective knowledge. The Father bearing witness to the Son and the Spirit. The Son bearing witness to both the Father and the Spirit. They're always bearing witness to one another. So there's always object, universal, binding truth within the Trinity. And consequently, in this world, there is objective truth because there's a triune God that gives grounds for objective truth. But there's also subjective experience. 
And we all know that our Christian walk is Christian walk rather is also a subjective experience. It's a true experience, but for example, in Romans eight, I believe it's uh, sixteen, it says the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and that's our immediate assurance of salvation. But yet it's subjective. But it's based on the witness of the Spirit, so it becomes objective that He's given witness to us. That we're not just following, as Peter says, cunningly devised fables. So these are many examples, and the examples can go on and on and on. But it's essentially to say this. We need to live our lives reflecting the triune nature of God. And that impacts the family, how the husband should behave, how the wife should behave, how the children should behave in submission to both the mother and the father, how at times we are called to lead and at other times we are called to serve. And what I typically find that happens in my observation is, especially when it comes to church leadership or ministry, especially with men, they either get one right or the other. They rarely have the two running concurrently with each other, uh, adjacent to one another. It's either, okay, it's about headship. It's about being a leader. It's about being in charge. It's about basically giving commands and instruction. And they get that down. They excel at giving instructions and being authoritative and being that head in that sense, which is a necessary component of church leadership and of ministry. But to forget about how Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, how he died for the sins of the world, how he gave up his life so that we may have life, and forget about the servant part. Counterwise, you can have some men in ministry who say, well, it's just about serving. I'm nobody special. I'm not going to have this hubris attitude where I'm going to exalt myself above everybody else. I was once talking to a gentleman who, in all sincerity, said to me, and he was in leadership, church leadership. He said, do you know what, Jonathan? You know, I'm just happy to be involved. Well, you won't mind if I come in and take over then. Right? If you're just happy to be involved. See, it's just too much servanthood. And that's, again, why I like the phrase king and servant for this podcast, because the idea is paradoxical theology and how that we should seek to live a balanced Christian life. And I honestly believe the more we study the Trinity and allow it to have its outworking into our daily lives, the more balanced our Christian walk shall be. Now, I know it's impossible to have perfect balance, but that's the bar. That's, that's the theology that should color the way you view life and impact the way you behave. So that as a minister or just as a, a person in the body of Christ, wherever you find yourself busy with ministry, you're both influencing and even in leadership, but at the same time serving. And that you oscillate between the two. You're leading and you're serving. You're serving and you're leading. And it's not lead, lead, lead and a little bit of service. It's always a reciprocation, a reciprocity, if you will, between the two. And you say, well, that's, that sounds challenging, John. That sounds difficult. That sounds um, remarkably complex. Well, it's not complex, but it is demanding in the sense of it requires of us to have the full-orbed 
experience of God in our lives when it comes to our sanctification. That it takes a mature Christian man or woman to see those times, I need to lead here. I need to say something. I need to speak up. There's people who are either being hurt or there's people who need to be looked after here or cared for here and I need to step up to the plate and do something, especially when it comes to men. And then there's other times it's like I need to shut up (laughs) and I need to get down and serve. It's not a time for my opinion. It's not a time for me to say what I think and why I think it. So you find in our lives that we often get this wrong. And I would say it's because we're not meditating and we're not communing with the triune God of Scripture. And yes, there is a definite order to things. But at the same time, things are harmonious and one. There's the one and the many. And that's the challenge for the Christian man and woman in this day and age. Can you do things in such a way that bring glory and reflect the triune nature of God? So I hope that challenges you. I hope that uh, gives you something to sink your teeth into for this week. Um, Next week I have something else in mind. Also we have the outreach series that uh, I would like to continue in. Um, But... um, Continue to pray for the show and uh, see what the Lord uh, would like to do with it. I'm very excited about those ideas I've shared already. Uh, But for this week, those are the thoughts that I have for you. Uh, Meditate on the doctrine of the Trinity. Don't take it lightly. Don't take it for granted. Uh, Be in awe of the doctrine. See how the church saints of old fought for the doctrine, defended the doctrine. And furthermore, don't leave it there. See it have its full expression in your Christian walk. And it'd be surprising how close to God you become. So I hope you enjoyed this teaching. And uh, until the, to the next show, I pray that the Lord will continue to bless the study of his word. God bless you all. And bye for now.